The Life, Crime, and Capture of John Wilkes Booth by George Alfred Townsend. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Letter Three: The Murderer, Washington, April 27th, Part One. Justice is satisfied, though blinder vengeance may not be. While the illustrious murdered is on the way to the shrine, the stark corpse of his murderer lies in the shambles. The one died quietly, like his life, the other died fighting, like his crime. And now that over all of them the darkness and the dew have descended, the populace, which may not be all satisfied, may perhaps be calmed. No triumphal mourning can add to the President's glory. No further execration can disturb the assassin's slumbers. They have gone for what they were into history, into tradition, into the hereafter both of men and spirits, and what they were may be in part concluded. Mr. Lincoln's career passes, in extent, gravity, and eventful association, the province of newspaper biography. But Booth is the hero of a single deed, and the delineation of him may begin and be exhausted in a single article. I have been at pains since the day of the President's obsequies to collect all valid information on the subject of his assassin, in anticipation of the latter's capture and death. Now that these have been consummated, I shall print the biography. The elder Booth in every land was a sojourner, as all his fathers were, of Hebrew descent and by a line of actors, he united in himself that strong Jewish physiognomy, which in its nobler phases makes all that is dark and beautiful, and the combined vagrancy of all men of genius and all men of the stage. Fitful, powerful, passionate, his life was a succession of vices and triumphs. He mastered the intricate characters of dramatic literature by intuition rather than by study, and produced them with a vigor and vividness which almost passed the depicting of real life. The stage on which he raved and fought became as historic as the actual decks of battleships, and his small and brawny figure comes down to us in those paroxysms of delirious art, like that of Harold, or Richard, or Prince Rupert. He drank to excess, was profligate but not generous, required but not reliable, and licentious to the bounds of cruelty. He threw off the wife of his bosom to fly from England with a flower-girl, and settling in Baltimore dwelt with his younger companion, and brought up many children while his first possessed went down to a drunken and broken-hearted death. He himself, wandering westward, died on the way, errant and feverish even in the closing moments. His widow, too conscious of her predecessor's wrongs, and often taunted with them, lived apart, frugal and discreet, and brought her six children up to honorable maturity. These were Junius Brutus, Edwin Forrest, though he drops the forest for professional considerations, John Wilkes, Joseph, and the girls. All of the boys are known to more or less of fame, none of them in his art has reached the renown of the father, but one has sent his name as far as that of the great playwright to whom they were pupils. Wherever Shakespeare is quoted, John Wilkes Booth will be named, and infamously, like that Hubert in King John, who would have murdered the gentle Prince Arthur. It may not be a digression here to ask what has become of the children of the weird genius I have sketched above. 
Mrs. Booth, against whom calumny has had no word to say, now resides with her daughters in 19th Street, New York. John S. Clark dwells in princely style in Philadelphia with the daughter whom he married. He is the business partner of Edwin Booth, and they are likely to become as powerful managers as they have been successful stars. Edwin Booth, who is said to have the most perfect physical head in America, and whom the ladies call the beau ideal of the melancholy Dane, dwells also on 19th Street. He has acquired a fortune, and is, without doubt, a frankly loyal gentleman. He could not well be otherwise from his membership in the Century Club, where literature and loyalty are never dissolved. Correct and pleasing without being powerful or brilliant, he has led a plain and appreciated career, and latterly, to his honor, has been awakening among dramatic authors some emulation by offering handsome compensations for original plays. Junius Brutus Booth, the oldest of them all, most resembles in feature his wild and wayward father. He is not as good an actor as was Wilkes, and kept in the West that border civilization of the drama. He now lies on a serious charge of complicity in Capitol Hill Jail. Joseph Booth tried the stage as a utility actor and promptly failed. The best part he ever had to play was Orson in The Iron Chest, and his discomfiture was signal. Then he studied medicine, but grew discouraged, and is now in California in an office of some sort. A son of Booth, by his first wife, became a first-class lawyer in Boston. He never recognized the rest of the family. Wilkes Booth, the third son, was shot dead on Wednesday for attempting to escape from the consequences of murder. Such are the people to whom one of the greatest actors of our time gave his name and lineaments. But I have anticipated the story. Although her family was large, it was not so hard sailing with Mrs. Rosalie Booth as may be inferred. Her husband's gains had been variably great, and they owned a farm of some value near Baltimore. The boys had plain but not sufficient schooling, though by the time John Wilkes grew up, Edwin and Junius were making some little money and helping the family. So Wilkes was sent to a better school than they, where he made some eventful acquaintances. One of these won his admiration as much in the playground as in subsequent life upon the field of battle. This was Fitzhugh Lee, son of the great rebel chieftain. I have not heard that Lee ever had any friendship for young Wilkes, but his port and name were enough to excite a less ardent imagination. The son of a soldier already great and a descendant of Washington. Wilkes Booth had often spoken of the memory of the young man, envied his success, and perhaps boasted of more intimacy than he ever had. The exemplars of young Wilkes, it was soon seen, were anything but literary. He hated school and pent-up life, and loved the open air. He used to stroll off to fish, though that sort of amusement was too sedentary for his nature, but went on fouling jaunts with enthusiasm. In these latter he manifested that fine nerve and certain eye which was the talk of all his associates. But his greatest love was the stable. He learned to ride with his first pair of boots, and hung around the grooms to beg permission to take the nags to water. He grew in later life to be both an indurated and graceful horseman. Toward his mother and sisters he was affectionate without being obedient. Of all the sons, 
Wilkes was the most headstrong indoors and the most contented away from home. He had a fitful gentleness which won him forgiveness, and of one of his sisters he was particularly fond, but none had influence over him. He was seldom contentious, but obstinately bent, and what he willed he did in silence, seeming to discard sympathy or confidence. As a boy he was never bright, except in a boy's sense, that is, he could run and leap well, fight when challenged, and generally fell in with the sentiment of the crowd. He therefore made many companions, and in his early days all passed between Baltimore City and the adjacent farm. I have heard it said, as the only evidence of Booth's ferocity in those early times, that he was always shooting cats, and killed off almost the entire breed in his neighborhood. But on more than one occasion he ran away from both school and home, and once made the trip of the Chesapeake to the oyster fisheries without advising any one of his family. While yet very young, Wilkes Booth became a habitué of the theatre. His traditions and tastes were all in that direction. His blood was of the stage, like that of the Keens, the Kembles, and the Wallachs. He would not commence at the bottom of the ladder and climb from round to round, nor take part in more than a few thespian efforts. One night, however, a young actor, who was to have a benefit and wished to fill the house, resolved for the better purpose to give Wilkes a chance. He announced that a son of the great booth of tradition would enact the part of Richmond, and the announcement was enough. Before a crowded place, Booth played so badly that he was hissed. Still holding to his gossamer hopes and high conceit, Wilkes induced John S. Clark, who was then addressing his sister, to obtain him a position in the company of the Arch Street Theatre at Philadelphia. For eight dollars a week, Wilkes Booth, at the age of twenty-two, contracted with William Wheatley to play in any piece or part for which he might be cast, and to appear every day at rehearsal. He had to play the courier in Sheridan Knowles' wife on his first night, with five or ten little speeches to make, but such was his nervousness that he blundered continually, and quite balked the piece. Soon afterward he undertook the part of one of the Venetian comrades in Hugo's Lucretia Borgia, and was to have said in his turn, Madame, I am Petruccio Pandolfo, instead of which he exclaimed, Madame, I am Pandolfo Pet uh, Pedolfio Pat Pantuccio Pet. Damn it, what am I? The audience roared, and Booth, though full of chagrin, was compelled to laugh with them. The very next night he was to play Dawson, an important part in Moore's tragedy, The Gamester. He had bought a new dress to wear on that night, and made abundant preparations to do himself honor. He therefore invited a lady whom he knew to visit the theatre and witness his triumph. But at the instance of his appearance on the stage, the audience, remembering Petruccio Pandolfo of the previous night, burst into laughter, hisses, and mock applause, so that he was struck dumb, and stood rigid with nothing whatever to say. Mr. John Dolman, to whose Stukeley has played, was compelled, therefore, to strike Dawson entirely out of the piece. These occurrences nettled Booth, who protested that he studied faithfully, but his want of confidence ruined him. Mr. Fredericks, the stage manager, made constant complaints of Booth, who, by the way, did not play under his full name, but as Mr. J. Wilkes, and he bore the general reputation of having no promise and being a careless fellow. 
He associated freely with such of the subordinate actors as he liked, but being through Clark, then a rising favorite of better connections, might, had he chosen, advanced himself socially, if not artistically. Clark was to have a benefit one evening, and to enact, among other things, a mock Richard III, to which he allowed Wilkes Booth to play a real Richmond. On this occasion, for the first time, Booth showed some energy, and obtained some applause. But in general he was stumbling and worthless. I myself remember on three consecutive nights having him trip up and receive suppressed hisses. He lacked enterprise. Other young actors, instead of waiting to be given better parts, committed them to memory, in the hope that their real interpreter might not come to hand. Among these I recalled John McCullough, who afterwards became quite a celebrated actor. He was getting, if I correctly remember, only six dollars a week, while Booth obtained eight. Yet Wilkes Booth seemed too slow or indifferent to get on the weather side of such chances. He still held the part of third walking gentleman, and the third is always the first to be walked off in case of straight, as was Wilkes Booth. He did not survive forty weeks' engagement, nor make above three hundred dollars in all that time. The Kellers arrived, they cut down the company, and they dispensed with Wilkes Booth. He is remembered in Philadelphia by his failure, as in the world, by his crime. About this time a manager named Kunkel gave Booth a salary of twenty dollars a week to go to the Richmond Theatre. There he played a high order of parts, and played them better, winning applauses from the easy provincial cities, and taking, as everywhere, the ladies by storm. I have never wondered why many actors were strongly predisposed toward the South. There their social status is nine times as big as with us. The hospitable, lounging, buzzing character of the Southerner is entirely consonant with the cosmopolitanism of the stage, and that easy hang-up-your-hat-ativeness which is the rule and the demand in thespianship. We place actors outside of society and execrate them because they are there. The South took them into affable fellowship, and was not ruined by it, but beloved by the fraternity. Booth played two seasons in Richmond, and left in some esteem. When the John Brown raid occurred, Booth left the Richmond theatre for the scene of strife in a picked company with which he had affiliated for some time. From his connection with the militia on this occasion he was wont to trace his fealty to Virginia. He was a non-commissioned officer, and remained in Charleston till after the execution, visiting the old pikeman in jail, and his company was selected to form guard around the scaffold when John Brown went white-haired to his account. There may be in this a consolation for the canonizers of the first arm-bearer between the sections, that one whose unit swelled the host to crush out that brave old life, took from the scene inspiration enough to slay a merciful president in his unsuspecting leisure. Booth never referred to John Brown's death in bravado. Possibly at that gallows began some such terrible purpose as he afterward consummated. End of Letter 3 Part 1